My name is Larry, and I'm one of the pastors here at Northgate. So if you're new with us, I just wanted to let you know at the top, here's who we are. Northgate is for everybody, and it doesn't matter your race, your age, your gender, what religion you were raised in, if any. It doesn't matter what political party you affiliate yourself with. It doesn't matter how much money you make or don't have. It doesn't matter whether you're homeless or you live in a mansion. If you're a student or retired, whether you are all in on Jesus or whether you are completely cynical and feel like you have been hurt by the church, this is a place where you will find a God and you will find people who love you just as you are. And that's the truth. So we are starting our Christmas series today, and I love Christmas. It's arguably the best holiday there is, but I don't mean to be a Scrooge, but there's some things I don't like about Christmas. One, I don't like the pressure of opening presents in front of other people at Christmas. I hate this feeling because I don't know if I'm going to like it. I don't know if I'm going to react weird and I can't control my face when it happens. And I'm going to tell you, I'm married to someone who's like the world's best present opener. You know, like somebody like this, if you get my wife anything... It can be a shirt she's never going to wear. It can be something she thinks is ugly. It could be something that she didn't even ask for. She will open it up and you feel like a million bucks because she goes, oh, this is so thoughtful. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate this. Look how you care for me and you take care of me so much. Thank you. I mean, it, it makes me just want to go out and buy something else for her, right? Then, if you bought me something and I don't like it, I open it up and I'm like, thanks. That's it, right? Something else that I don't like that comes up at Christmas is glitter. Somebody called glitter the herpes of the craft store. It never goes away and it shows up at the worst possible times. Last year, somebody sent me a Christmas card covered in glitter and I just interpreted that to mean, Larry, I hate you. Merry Christmas. Something else that I really think is weird at Christmas is pictures of the nativity. And of course, the nativity is like the scene of when Jesus was born. And so there's like the barn and there's the baby Jesus in the manger. And there's his mother Mary and his father Joseph and the shepherds crowded around. And you'll see it on some Christmas cards or different places. But there's like some really weird versions of this. And I just want to show you a couple that I found online. There's a bunch of pictures. This is just one that I thought was really interesting because there's literally animals just around staring. There's like a duck in a Christmas tree. I don't even know what's going on right here. There's not even people in it except for Jesus. I missed that in the Christmas story. The next one, there's a bunch of them. Jesus actually is glowing. Like, what's even happening here? He's just glowing. And I don't even read that in the Bible. And then this, when I was looking for these, I found this next one, which I love. A hipster nativity. So I just want to unpack this real quick, just so you don't miss any of the details. There's an organic cow, right? You go to the right side, and there's the Amazon delivery guys on Segways. Then I love Mary because she's got like this trendy off-the-shoulder sweatshirt and her Starbucks in her hand. And an hour after delivery, she's posting for a selfie because he's got a post on Instagram. It didn't happen. And my favorite part of the whole thing is on the top of the barn. Solar panels. But the thing that you typically see 
and the nativity is that it's perfect. Mary never looked like she just went through labor on the floor of a barn without an epidural. Joseph is never stressed about having his family travel and no place to stay. Jesus never crying. Because why would a newborn cry or do anything like that? And they're just welcoming in these shepherds who are like the low lives of the society in that day. And they have, they, they've been like handling sheep and they didn't have any hand sanitizer. And then they let them in to get up all up on their baby's business. And that kind of feeds into this big image that's presented to us at Christmas, right? Christmas is the time of the year with parties and food and presents and decorations and joy and family gets along and nobody's mad at each other and relationships are perfect and everyone gets what they want. And it's just great. But if you're like me, you look at the image that's presented to you of Christmas and you look at your life and you say, these don't line up because I got family drama. I got relationship problems. I'm single, or I wish I was single, or she's about to leave, or I've got this big secret, and my spouse thinks things are great, and I don't think I can tell them because it would crush them. But it's ruining my life, and I probably deserve it. And I'm anxious, and I'm depressed, and I'm addicted. I'm not good enough. I'm giving my best and it's still not good enough or my loved one is no longer here. And I just want to give up on everything. So we come into like this place and we ask, does Jesus have anything to say in situations like that? Does Jesus have anything for people like me? We're calling this series Wreck the Halls because that's what Jesus does his entire life as he turns all of our assumptions about God upside down. So today, specifically for those of us that Christmas means alone, or for those of us that Christmas means grief, or that Christmas means stress, and maybe most importantly, that Christmas is just another reminder of God, and therefore how far away we are from Him, and we're not good enough. If there's something in you this time of year that sees all the signs of Christmas, and it all looks so great, and you just wish, I would give anything if you could just match the perception of Christmas that was presented to you, and you think God actually wants good for you, friends, we're going to experience something good from God today. And we're going to save the Christmas story itself for Christmas services in actually just a few weeks, but for today and the next couple of the weeks, we're going to just pick some stories from Jesus's life to see how he turns all of our presumptions about God upside down to show us why he was born, why Christmas matters, and specifically why it matters for people. So here's today's story. It's out of Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons, and she knelt respectfully to ask a favor. Now, James and John are two of Jesus's 12 apostles, so they're part of the inner circle. What's your request? Then Jesus asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Now, I don't like this already because it's like the two kids on the Little League team who go to mom and they complain to the coach, and so we're not getting enough PT, right? 
I think that's what Jesus felt with James and John. Like, are you kidding me, guys? Like you're sending your mom to talk to me? Grow up and ask yourself. It's just my interpretation of scripture. So in verse 22, it says, but Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Now, here's what that means. Because right before this story we're reading today, like literally right before, not days before, not a week before, literally the conversation before this goes like this. Listen, Jesus is talking to that inner circle of 12. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed and will be sentencing him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip and crucified. So right after he says that, he asked, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Oh yeah, we're able. And I think Jesus is, uh, like this was like a face palm moment for him where he's like, who selected these guys for me? Not only are they arrogant, they're ignorant. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. Now, this is actually a prediction of what's going to happen, because if you keep reading ahead in the Bible, eventually you come to the book called Acts. And in chapter 12 in the book of Acts, you see James is executed by the local political leader. And if you keep reading in the scriptures after that, eventually you get to the book of Revelation, where you learn that his brother John, from the story, spends his old age in exile. Jesus says, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right, on my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Meaning, guys, stupid question. My Father's going to take care of that. Let's move on to what we got to do right now. So basically, James and John sent Mommy to ask a request of Jesus, and he is now in verse 24, when the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they're like indignant. Now, why do you think they were indignant? It wasn't because they were so holy. They were saying, you guys shouldn't have asked that. It's because they were jealous. They didn't think of it first. And here's how I know this. You see, all of the time where they were getting in trouble for arguing about which one of them was the best. So I'll read to you just a couple of these. Luke 22, then the disciples began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Luke 9, then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. Mark 9, Jesus says, hey guys, what were you talking about on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. So when James and John say, hey Jesus, when you're like king and ruler over everything, can we have the most important seats of honor to show we're better than everyone else? The other 10 aren't mad at them for not being humble. They're mad at them because they didn't think of it first. Verse 25, but Jesus called them together. And I think you can insert here the dad talk. And he said, hey guys, you know that Rulers in the world lord over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. And I think that when Jesus says this to them, they're instantly thinking of the Roman soldiers who occupied their land and could do whatever they want. 
They're thinking of the tax collectors who legally can just stop anyone at any time for any reason and demand as much money as they want from them. They're thinking of the religious leaders who took God's law and added a bunch of meticulous laws on top of it. And if you don't follow their meticulous made-up laws, they ostracize you from the religious community. And when you hear of that from Jesus, you think of people who have authority and use it. It almost seems to just show up that they have to have the authority, right? I mean, this is the boss who makes you stay late on a work project that even though it's not even behind schedule and it's not due for a couple months, it's the coach that makes only you run sprints after practice. It's the teacher that seems to give you the hardest or extra assignments. It's the parent who seems to make things up just to show you that they're the parent and they don't even make you into the adult that you want to become. And Jesus says, hey, you know that. But verse 26, but among you, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. So this is what sometimes happens. Me, when I'm doing this type of thing, it doesn't work out so hot for my kids because I'm like in this story trying to figure this out and what, what we need to talk about. For example, it was just the other week, I'm going over scripture and trying to figure out, you know, what God wants me to say or what, what's, what he wants to say to us through this. And my two oldest kids, 13-year-old girl and 11-year-old boy, are getting in a fight about something, and I don't even remember what it was, but they're arguing, like, just wanted a seat in the car or play with a thing or whatever it was, and it's not resolving itself. And I kind of stayed back for a minute to see if they could work it out, and they're not. It's getting worse, and it's going to blow up. And so I pull my 13-year-old daughter aside, and I said, you have to give your brother what you want. So I've just been reading this scripture, and she says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you're the only one of the kids who's been baptized and said, Jesus, I place my faith in you, and I'm going to follow you no matter what, so you have control over my whole life right now. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you're not first. You actually got to be a servant. You got to be a slave. So that means from now on forever, you got to give your brother whatever he wants. Just give it to him and give him everything. And she looks at me and says, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But that's what he's saying. And then he says, in verse 28, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And that phrase, Son of Man, is a phrase Jesus uses to refer to himself. He said, guys, I'm your leader. Remember, I'm here to serve. And the word ransom is a word that is reserved in Jesus' day specifically for the act of buying freedom for a slave. If someone was in slavery, you could use a specific word to ransom them out of slavery, and they could not ever be made a slave ever again because you had bought their life with it. So Jesus is saying, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to die on a cross, and that's grace. 
A true leader does whatever it takes to show grace. And he says, that's what I came here to do. And the reason we talk so much about grace here is because it's the thing that separates Jesus from anything in any way. But here's the problem with grace, is grace can't really be explained. Grace has to be experienced. I remember uh, before when I first just got married, uh, had an Xbox and was really into video games. And like it, dive in headphones, screaming at stuff, like just fully into the moment, fully experiencing these video games. My wife would, you know, watch and she'd come over and be like, I married a real winner, right? And she'd stare at me and watch me do this. I was like, oh man, you got to do this. And so finally I, I ended up getting a game so we could interact together called Rock Band. And I was like, you got to do this with me. And so I finally talked her into playing a video game with me, Rock Band. And one of the funnest things that we did when we were young in our marriage is we would like jam on a rock band like every night together. And like we'd trade off who's playing the drums and the guitar solo parts, so much songs that we were doing. And it was this thing that we got to experience. We didn't just talk about it, but we were fully engulfed in experiencing it together. It completely changed video games for her because before she had just watched it from a distance and she'd heard about the video games that I was participating in and watched me enjoy it. But it completely changed when she began to experience it together and the joy that came from that. You see, the video game explained was one thing, but the video game experienced was something else entirely. And grace explained is one thing, but grace experienced is something else. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some implications of what Jesus said. And my hope today is that you leave with a better understanding of grace. My prayer is that you actually leave today feeling experienced grace, that you feel his love in that way. So the first thing I want to do is set us free from a lie in our culture. You've heard this lie. You've probably said this lie. That sounds good. A, A lot of Christians repeat this lie because it sounds spiritual, the lie goes like this. I need to forgive myself. Or, I just can't forgive myself. Or Christians would say something like, I know God's forgiven me, but I'm just struggling to forgive myself. I want to explain why this is a lie. See, forgiveness always has a cost. I'll explain it in this way. Let's say you own a house on the beach or the woods, and You come up to me and say, Larry, I know you love the beach and the woods, and you can use my cabin for free for a week. Now, we're just talking hypothetically here, but you can always reach me by my email if you have a cabin. Um, So, yeah, anyways. (laughs) But I experienced that for a week. And at the end of the week, as I'm backing out of the driveway, let's say that I run over the mailbox and I pulverize it. What can happen is one of two things. Either you can't forgive me, in which case I got to buy you a new mailbox, or you can forgive me. But if you forgive me, that means you have to buy a new mailbox. Either way, somebody is buying a new mailbox. Forgiveness always has a cost. You've wondered, people have asked you, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why didn't God just snap his fingers and we're all forgiven? Well, this is why. Because forgiveness always has a cost. So in my sin, there's a cost. Me doing what I want to do instead of what God says is best for me. Instead, someone has to pay the cost for that. 
I can pay it. But the good news is Jesus says, if you want, I'll pay it. If you just have faith that I can save you through my death on a cross. Forgiveness always has a cost. So for the mailbox, if you forgive me, you pay the cost. If you don't forgive me, I pay the cost. Think of relationships. Someone hurts you deeply. If you don't forgive them, they pay the cost of that because they have forfeited a relationship with you. At the, at the least, a deep one. But if you forgive them with proper boundaries, you can enter back into relationship. But you bear the cost of that because you still remember what they did, even when they don't. You have to choose to forgive them continually when they're not even thinking about it. And you have to say, I'm going to bear the cost of this so we can be in relationship. Either way, someone pays the cost. And this is why this idea of forgiving myself is impossible, because forgiveness is transferring the cost. So if I do something in my sin that I know that I shouldn't, that God says that this is not what leads to true life, one of two things can happen. I can either give it to God, and he can forgive me, and it's gone. Or I can try to forgive myself. But if I'm trying to forgive myself, forgiveness is transferring the cost. So forgiving yourself means transferring the cost from yourself to yourself. So you're still carrying the cost. It's logically impossible. So when you hear people say, or you catch yourself saying, I just want to forgive myself. I'm trying to forgive myself. I just can't forgive myself. That's correct. You can't forgive yourself. You'll even hear Christians say it, but... It's a lie of the world. And the beauty of the cross is you don't have to try to forgive yourself because that's what Jesus did on the cross. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And here's what this means. If you've been weighed down by guilt and shame, Jesus wants to take that from you right now. See, Satan wants you to believe that you need to do something in addition to what Jesus has already done for you. And scriptures say Satan schemes, and it's one of his best schemes, is this lie that sounds really spiritual, that I need to forgive myself. No, you don't. I just need to come to grips with the fact that Jesus has forgiven me he set me free. He made me new. Even the thing that I think that I should feel guilty for, still I'm forgiven. Here's the truth. Grace means it's impossible to forgive myself. You may need to figure out how to walk in that forgiveness. Another implication of what Jesus says here is the lie we believe um, so often is this one. That what I do, and as I talk, you can substitute what I did or even what I will do, but what I do is who I am too. Here's a conversation. If you follow Jesus, you have people ask you stuff like this. What does Jesus say about blank? Or what does the Bible say about blank? And they're typically saying it with uh, like a cynical tone and testing what Jesus said about it. Because if Jesus says something different than what I feel, I'm out. Or if Jesus disagrees with my behavior, then he's judgmental, and I don't want anything that he has to offer. 
But the biggest question is not what does Jesus say about that. The biggest question is who does Jesus say you are? So when you have a problem or a struggle, my first question is what's your identity? Is it I'm black? I'm a woman? I'm a husband? I'm a mom? I'm a student? I'm an athlete? Or is your identity first? I'm a child of God. See, my identity can't be pastor. It can't be husband or dad or son or friend. My identity has to be child of God. Because if I get that, it changes everything. Grace doesn't merely forgive you. Grace changes who you are. There are two times in the Bible where the Father talks audibly to Jesus. One is before he begins his ministry at the baptism, and the other is before he goes to Jerusalem so he can be executed. And he has this like experience on the top of a mountain. It's called, it's kind of weird, it's called the transfiguration. He talks to him two times. Both times the father says the exact same thing to his son, Jesus. He says, you are my dearly loved son. He's not saying, here's what I need you to go do. He's telling him, here's who you are. He says, here's who you are. Here's how I feel about you. Here's what you do for me. You are my son. I love you. You bring me joy. And here's what's so great. When you place faith in Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. And he says the same thing about you. In John 1, it says that you are his child. 1 John 3 says God loves you. And in Jesus' most famous story, Luke chapter 15, he says, listen, when any of God's runaway kids comes home for any reason at all, the father doesn't judge them or condemn them or say, you're a sinner. What took you so long? He throws a big party. And here's the most important thing, in my opinion. He says, there's more joy in heaven over the one person than over anything else that could ever happen in the world. You bring God joy. See, we get it backwards. Religion says, if I do this, then God will do this. So I think if I love God, then he gives me joy. But Jesus wrecks religion. He says, no, 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 no. It's grace. So he loves me first, and the result, and this blows my mind, is I bring him joy. And this is what the deepest kind of prayer can be. I, I think because prayer, I would, I would call sometimes a surface prayer. What we do every day, I, I can treat God like Santa Claus. I go to him first, and I say, God, I need you to heal this person, and I need you to bring peace to this person, and I need you to fix that marriage, and I need you to comfort them in their grief. And if you could do all that by Christmas, that would be great. Please deliver in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good day. And that is good and is specific. Here's what I'm learning is a deeper prayer. To sit there in the quiet and just repeat, God, you love me. I'm your child. I bring you joy. Got to start today. I just need to remind myself that you love me. I'm your son. And I don't get it but I bring you joy. I messed up yesterday and I blew up on my family and it was horrible for everyone, but God, you love me and I'm still your child and I'm bringing you joy. And God, I'm reading the scriptures right now and to be honest, God, I don't mean to insult you, but 
It's just kind of dry for me. So I'll just remind myself right now that I'm your child. You love me. And I bring you joy. Religion says, you first love God, and the result is he gives me joy. And God says, no, 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 no. I love you, and you bring me joy, and that's called grace. And the reason that's possible is because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And that means I don't have to perform. My identity is secure, and the service issues will work out because I know who I am. And here's how I'd sum it up if you're taking notes. Grace means that my identity is I am his child. And please lean into this because knowing who you are changes everything. And I know, I know that there are people here who are so tired of performing and you're talented and you're hardworking and you're a great people person. But somewhere along the line, you tied your performance to his acceptance. And that is a lie. Will you just please begin each day by repeating until you believe it? I am your child. You love me. I bring you joy. And some of you have a trail of broken relationships behind you, and you blame each one on the other person, but there's a common denominator, and it's you. (laughs) And the reality is, is you can't accept criticism because it would be to admit that you're at fault, and that just can't be true because that would destroy your perception of how you get to God. Can I ask you in humility to realize your identity is not an approval from others, but an acceptance from Christ that you are his child? He loves you. You bring him joy. Can I ask you to just slow down and not make any drastic decisions until you experience and hear that he loves you and that you are his child and just the way you are, you bring him joy. Because when you know who you are, friends, it changes everything. And I know stuff you feel. It feels so important, and it is, but it goes deeper because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And so if you're new here or you've been around Northgate for years, let me remind you of this. This is simply a place where we are trying to receive and walk and live out grace. The author of Hebrews gives us what I think could be like the mission statement of our church. He says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. You know why people join groups here? So nobody misses the grace of God. You know why as believers, we read the scriptures every day? So we don't miss the grace of God. You know why hundreds of people volunteer at different campuses it's so nobody misses the grace of God he says it's not love me and then I'll give you joy it's I love you no strings attached and you give me joy can we keep being the church that wrecks religion can we keep being the church that Jesus uses to bring the awesome amazing life of Christ to the lost, hurting, and broken world. Can we continue to be that church, friends?
Let's worship.